You're listening to Movers and Shakers, a podcast about living with Parkinson's. The show is generously sponsored by Boardway, an exclusive European networking community for software CEOs. Boardwave is a passionate supporter of Cure Parkinson's. For more details on the charity's progress around research and its fundraising, please visit cureparkinson's.org.uk. So hello and welcome to a very special episode of Movers and Shakers, the podcast about living with Parkinson's. I'm Gillian and this week we're not in the pub, we're live in a hotel in Birmingham and we're the entertainment the closing session for the annual general meeting of Parkinson's UK. But, as we were saying, we're sadly diminished. Only half strength, possibly just the movers or maybe just the shakers. So let's have a roll call of who is here. I'm Paul Mayhew Archer. I'm Mel Model, and... I'm Nicholas Mostyn. And I'm not here because overnight I went down with a lurgy, not covid but one which has made me feel very average indeed. I hope you have a very productive session. So that's poor old Nick. And then overnight, we, our WhatsApp group was alive with right updates from Rory. I have worse news, he said. I'm in A&E after a bad fall over a fallen branch in the dark. I'm pretty bashed up and waiting for x-ray. And then later, he'd broken his elbow and then taken home in an ambulance at 4am with plaster cast. They will operate next week. Probably the most horrible night of my life, certainly the most painful. And it's particularly sad, actually, because that happened the day after his wife, Professor Diane Coyle, was made a dame. Ooh. Yeah, they were at the palace the day before, so that deserves a lot of applause. And then, to cap it all, we got a message to say that Jeremy Paxman has caught the latest wave of COVID. But let's prove we have a live audience, so I would like you all to call out, get well soon, Jeremy and Nick. Could we all shout out? Get well soon, Jeremy and Nick. Get well well soon, Jeremy and Nick. And also, could we call out your clumsy bastard, Roy, (laughs) where you're going next time? (laughs) (laughs) Very good indeed. Well done, well done. Well, that was yesterday, which was Friday the 13th, of course, but today we're on safer (laughs) ground. So what's the plan today? Well, we've got a two-fold approach. First of all, we're going to find out all about Britain's biggest Parkinson's charity, and we're going to put them through the ringer a bit and see how they're spending their money. And then the second thing we wanted to talk about was a charter, the idea of a charter, which I hope people think it's a good idea, but we should be coming back to that. But I have to say that the judge wrote to us when we said we were going to be talking about a charter, even though he's ill and in bed. And what was he saying? Mark, can you do a sufficiently posh accent? I'll try. By the way, my own view about a charter is that if we do go down this route, it should not be called a charter. That would be regarded as a bit above itself, given that charters are the governing instruments of certain unincorporated associations granted by the monarch on the advice of the Privy Council! Exclamation mark. After all, our most important national document, Magna Carta, is a charter. <laughs> to which Jeremy Paxman would no doubt say, fuck off, Judge. <laughs> So straight to the interviews then. So we're very lucky to have with us Caroline Russell, the Chief Executive, and Chairman Gary Shaughnessy. Both are relatively new in their roles. And we've got a lot of questions, but first of all, Paul wanted to talk to you about three anecdotes that hit, which were each one very reflective of something that was slightly wrong with the organisation beforehand. Wrong, wrong and right. Three memories of Parkinson's. So I remember some two years ago visiting 215, the, the, the headquarters of Parkinson's UK, 
we were told that the meeting was going to be on the fourth floor and we were led into this little lift and I said, oh, it'd be a bit of a squeeze to get a wheelchair in here and was told that there actually isn't any wheelchair capacity in the lifts. And I was, remember being a bit shocked by that. But hurrah, you're getting rid of the building. Fantastic. So you're pleased to be going from 215, can I ask, Caroline? Yeah, we're very pleased to be going from 215. We're just, though, a little bit anxious that before we go, we think we might have a visit from, you know, the uh, very popular people that are in Paris at the moment, the bedbugs. So not that there's any staff in there. We we work so hard, Paul, that we're there 24-7. No. So we are shaking our mattresses out and making sure (laughs) that there's no bedbugs. But we are, we are delighted to be moving. To, moving uh, and shaking them. We, we are moving and shaking them. Indeed we are. Fantastic. And my second memory is, because um, I have a lot to be grateful to Parkinson's UK for, because it was Parkinson's UK doing shows at the Royal Albert Hall and then at the Comedy Store, which got me doing stand-up and gave me the opportunity to do it. So I'm incredibly grateful to, to Parkinson's UK I have a memory, my, my wife at the comedy store tried to buy some raffle tickets and was told by one of the PUK staff that they'd sold all the raffle tickets. Now, I don't think it's actually possible to sell all the raffle tickets because they're just bits of paper. So I just want to be assured by Gary or Caroline that you know, you're going to make every effort to, to raise as much money as humanly possible, however you can do it. Definitely, Paul, yeah. I don't know that we'll need all the paper. We, we'll find some virtual way of doing it. But, Thank um, you. Yeah, no problem at all. Thank you very much. Indeed. I mean, what disturbed me about that idea of the raffle paper was this notion that there was no sort of entrepreneurial spirit within the organisation. Can you show us that there is now? So we've got lots of um, things that we're doing that are hugely exciting. I know you had David on the... And David's in the audience today. David wants to wave. David speaking the other week to you about some of the things we're looking at in terms of trying to get the community to help us understand what tech is really helpful for them. So I I call it kind of a a trip advisor for tech that people are using who've got Parkinson's so that the community can talk to itself, in effect, Mm -hmm. and kind of rank what they're using to see whether it's useful or not. It's great that we've got clever researchers and different types of professionals that can tell you how good something is, but actually, what's better than having someone who's using a piece of technology to help them? So I think that that's something that's really quite exciting and innovative. In terms of the very clear message that Paul's got about raffle tickets, we actually did hold an event at the Comedy Store actually this week, and I'm proud to say that we we raised over £6,000, almost entirely from the raffle, and we had a whole book left. So we have learned our lesson. <laughs> Whether that's been entrepreneurial or not, I don't know, but we've certainly learned our lesson. So we're oversubscribed with raffle tickets. And indeed, I'm surprised today you all haven't been given a special raffle ticket and you could have won a, a seat up here rather than me. Gillian, the, the other thing you say about entrepreneurs, I think you just look in the, the room here. I mean, we've got some wonderful people across the Parkinson's community who do some incredible things in groups. They do them as part of employees of, of Parkinson's UK. So we tend to focus, you know, on the rules and the governance. But there are some superb things. I mean, think about some of the exercise classes, boxing. I've promised to go down and, and uh, spend a Friday afternoon having boxing training and learning how to do a proper press-up, which apparently Carolina's now will now demonstrate. 
Let's not be too aggressive in our questioning if you know how to box. <laughs> no, I was going, just going back to basics, my wife asked me at breakfast, where do they get their money from? And I was about to explain it, and I thought, well, I better ask a man who knows. A reasonable amount of the money that we get comes from legacies. So a lot of people, maybe they've got Parkinson's or family members got Parkinson's, and they give a, a legacy as part of that. We get a lot of funding from corporate relationships and partners, uh, individual donors. The walk for Parkinson's is a great example, actually. I think this year, I'll get the number wrong, so Caroline will put me right, but I think it's about 870,000 this year. Yeah. Um, and about 2,200 individuals who've been part of Walk for Parkinson's. What's Super. the balance between those three sources? Then? So I think Legacies is about 55 60%. So it's a big part of the number, actually. And my third memory of Parkinson's UK is going to 10 Downing Street in 2017 to meet the Prime Minister of the day. It now is sort of Prime Minister per day, isn't it, really? <laughs> um, and this was uh, Theresa May. She was speaking to us as Parkinson's UK, and she, she said... Two centuries on from Dr. James Parkinson's essay on the shaking palsy, we have simply not done enough or come anywhere near far enough. For our part, this government is investing over £1 billion a year through the National Institute for Health Research, which has doubled its spending on neurological conditions since 2010. And I thought, my God, £1 billion, that's a hell of a lot of money to spend on Parkinson's. That's almost as much as Boris spent on wallpaper. But then, of course, you think to yourself, it's not actually going on Parkinson's. I don't know how much actually is going on Parkinson's. And when they say something like it's spending double what it spent in 2010, that's a meaningless figure because we don't know what it was spent then. So what I want to know is, is the charity going to really go for getting as much money from government as possible? And how can it do it? How can it persuade government to take this illness more seriously? Because it is serious. So the first thing is, yes, we do want more money from government, but the second thing is everyone wants more money from government. So the key question is, how do we put a compelling argument? I think one of the most compelling arguments is most people don't see the Parkinson's community the way we see them. There's lots of people in this room and across the community. There's 158,000 people in the UK who have Parkinson's, you add the families in that are affected. This is affecting well north of half a million people. A lot of those people could work for longer in roles that worked for them if we were able to find a cure or something that helps manage Parkinson's more successfully. That brings funds into the Chancellor's coffers. That doesn't seem to get taken into account. I think we've got some really practical issues that get in the way for people with Parkinson's. I mean, I just took my medication before I came on stage. And for a person with Parkinson's, opening Parkinson's medication, yeah. I don't think I'm the only one. It's really <laughs> difficult. So it's not just about money. It's actually about practical things that help people feel they can get on and live their life rather than having to feel that they're a burden to the, the state. And I definitely don't think we're a burden to the state. And I think we've got to take a much more positive attitude to the discussions we have with government that say not just that we want the money, but actually we think there's, this is something that's really good for the state as well because you get people productive, enjoying life, and that makes a difference for all sorts of mental health social costs. They're good arguments, still... but how do you actually make sure that they're actually heard? 
I think I've got a challenge for you guys, yeah. actually, because you've got a unique position. So if you think about what's happened with motor neurone disease, I mean, there's been a whole change in tide in terms of people being aware of it and in terms of mm. government talking about ring-fencing money for MND. But they mustered the strength of people who are in the public eye. And I suppose we've got three people here, whether, and that's not Gary and I, but three people on stage that are in the public eye. You've got colleagues, you're three people who aren't here today, mm. who all have a wealth of experience. And actually, we need you to help us, to help everyone in the room. And actually, that's where the power will come of kind of working together. We can think of innovative ideas mm. of how to help the story be told. That's the world now, isn't it? It's all about polarising what the issues are and getting people who are in the public domain and who everybody knows to talk about. And I think the idea that Laurel had around, you know, World Parkinson's Day, the 11th of April, my challenge is for you guys, what are you doing on the 11th of April? Because I think together with some people from the community and the support of the charity, we could really make a difference, whether we can stand outside number 10 or stand in Whitehall or anywhere. What would be the main thing we could do? What would you like us to campaign for? What's the main thing? Well, this comes on to Gillian's charter, I think. I'd be interested in what yeah. you want us to, and that, that's the audience and that's everyone as well. Else as well. Yeah. Can we just quickly finish on the charity? Because we talked about where the money came from, but we didn't talk about where it goes, which I think is probably a critical question. There was 39 million you spent, is that correct, yeah. this year? Could you just give us a sense of where that's going? Yeah, about 10 to 12 million goes on scientific research, so why people get Parkinson's, all the way through to our drug discovery, looking at some of the brilliant trials that hopefully one day will come up with better treatments for people with Parkinson's. So 12 million goes there. We spend about another £8 million supporting what we call our excellence network. So we do support the NHS. We have funded over the last 35 years 70% of the Parkinson's nurses. Uh, we're now starting to broaden out and uh, fund therapists, and we also fund a lot of the education. So even if we haven't funded a Parkinson's nurse, we offer free training to Parkinson's professionals so that they can be ahead of the game and make sure they know what's happening. And that's so important because they are often the gateway to people accessing research. So it's kind of a bit of a virtuous circle. Does that not mean that if you're funding the nurses and not the NHS directly... You know, we're given a lower priority as Parkinson's people. Why should the NHS not fund those nurses? Oh, well, I completely agree with yeah. you with that, Gillian. But we could spend £39 million publicising the fact the NHS should be funding Parkinson's nurses, and that won't change. So I was a chief exec in the NHS. I, I was in the NHS for 20 years in total, and I never once had one conversation about Parkinson's. Wow. Neuro wow. Neurological that is shocking, conditions, isn't it? That is shocking. Neurological conditions are unseen. That is not right. One of the reasons why I was, I'm so pleased to be here with Parkinson's UK is that actually, as a charity, we are making a difference and can make a difference. So, no, it's not right. And we will continue to campaign and use our voice to try and rectify that. But actually, that's not going to happen overnight. Do you think Parkinson's, because of sort of condition it is, it gets treated differently in that it doesn't, like many cancers, kill you immediately. It's not curable either. I think there's a real problem here, which is the way that we and the NHS think about Parkinson's and neurological conditions. We put the same ceiling on that the health service does. So we 
take it as you've got an incurable condition, just a question of how rapidly it evolves. And that sets people up to basically fade away. And the reality is there's a hell of a lot that people can do. Everyone I've spoken to who's, who's had Parkinson's, you know, has a, a gift or an ability of some form that you see brilliant people using their spare time and with branches and the groups to, to use those capabilities. And yet we assume you're going to give up work you're going to stop doing stuff. You, you, you basically are on, you're on the, the sort of side heap at one point. And if we take a much more positive approach, there's a real strength in that rather than just saying we want more money just to pay for more, uh, more medication or research. All the I time. wanted to ask you about your own story because you mentioned being productive and having an enjoyable and active life. I mean, you certainly have. But what's your story? Well, I was diagnosed about eight and a half years ago. It came as a real shock. I was 48 at the time. And first off, I did go through that sort of pit of assuming that, you know, I should just give up work. It was a question of when would I retire. And actually, my wife was brilliant, and she just said, you've got to focus on what you can do. I got promoted. I started doing marathons. I started doing wing walking, and, and then a few other things came along. And I've, I've just... I wish I didn't have to have Parkinson's to have had the changes to my life and the way that I've worked and the way that I, you know, I am with my family and my friends. There's a real lesson in, in that you know, it shouldn't take a, a condition like Parkinson's to make you change your style and the way that you work. Your challenge to us, Caroline, is absolutely right in a way, and I think we all have to make the most of what we can do to, to promote Parkinson's. And I think what you say, Gary, about fading away is one of the things that happens. We do a bit and then we fade away and then it's announced a bit later that we've died and gone and we've been forgotten by then. And so what we have to keep doing is getting out there yeah. and talking about what we've got and, and sh showing what we've got and behaving even when it's, it becomes embarrassing and difficult for us because the more we do that, the more we will get publicity for Parkinson's. Right, well, let's talk patient charter then, shall we? Because that's all about that. Who thinks it might be a good idea to have a charter? <laughs> what would you say? 80% was that? Yeah. Okay, 80%. We'll go with that then. Any thoughts on what should be in the charter? It's, it's, a, it's a complex condition, and it re re requires a complex response. And therefore, you've got to have some mechanism for deciding what the most appropriate intervention is for the inter-person concerned. You've got all the specialism in the NHS, but they need to be wound up and working together in such a way that you get a problem-solving approach, which is based around each individual on each occasion. Which makes it very complicated, doesn't it? There's an existing standard of care for all patients, and that should be on the charter, the standard of care for Parkinson's patients. Each health authority, healthcare trust around the country operates differently. And until they work together, it's very difficult for someone, say, in Scotland, in a remote area, to get the same standards as care as most of you get in London. So I think it should spell out when we should see a consultant, that we should all have a nurse, and we should have a team around us that includes physios, speech therapists, nutritionists, people who will give us psychological support when we get uh, depressed and apathetic, all those kinds of things we should have access to them, or we should be told what access we do have to them. So you're saying two different things there. One is that nationally the standard of care should be the same, 
And the second one is that it should be a multidisciplinary approach. Is that right? Absolutely. Brilliant. Okay. I think that's absolutely spot Great. on. We've got three of the ten already. Nick Mostyn sees his consultant four times a year. Does four he pay? Four times. No, 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 he doesn't pay for He's having your go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> though, to be fair, he has raised £80,000. That is so, true. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I just think that it should be really positive. It's a bit to Gary's point, really. It's about what people can do. And it should be really focused on making people achieve the best that they can do within the health service. So with the onus on us. Absolutely, absolutely. It's person-centred. I was talking about the whole charter idea with Johnny Aitchison, whose name comes up again and again here, who is a neurologist who himself has Parkinson's. And he was saying that it needs to be two-sided, this charter. Fine for us to demand things from the NHS, but then we have to also give things back. It's rights and responsibilities, which seems to make sense to me. Anyone else? Gillian, for me, I think there has to be a minimum level that anyone across the country should expect from their interaction with with the NHS. The second key thing, I think, is this individual point. Uh, I have a friend of ours who has Parkinson's, and um, she's nearly at retirement age. Mm -hmm. She can't work. She has to go through a, a benefits review, which has happened three times each of the last... You know, she's coming up to retirement now. No, they, yeah, that's they, just humiliating, just, just, isn't it? No it, point. It's appalling for her to have to go through that. It costs money to put her through that, only to come to the same conclusion, which is she's going to retire in six months. So what's the point of having the, the review that takes away her benefits? Plus, and, at the and moment, the it doesn't get is, better, does it? So it's no, not going right, to be that suddenly, woohoo. And it's also about simplifying yeah. things. Yeah. Can, I, can I ask, would it help if local groups got more involved in this? Because it's the local groups who know the people, know the local medics and have relationships with the medics and who can therefore talk to them about these things and try and secure rights for, the, for other people with Parkinson's in their local area. So absolutely, and I think across the UK we've got different examples of where local groups have been really successful in, in lobbying their local hospital or kind of activating their local MP to help them also unlock. So I think there's, there's layers of how this needs to work so that the message is held. There is that consistent level at the very top mm. with you, Gillian, and your colleagues on the 11th of April outside. <laughs> Down the all street, right, all right, we've taken uh, the hint, through. 11th of uh, April. You know, there's a consistency that then we can bring to carry that through as a charity on a national level. But absolutely, we all need to support the local groups who are so effective at lobbying locally and we've got more resource going in locally to be able to support people to be mm. able to campaign more effectively so what we don't want to do is take it over because there is nothing more effective than a group of people who have Parkinson's campaigning not a group of paid managers but we can help and we can support I'd, I'd like to put something like that in the charter about the involvement of local groups and I haven't I've been thinking about this but it's rather ill thought out but the idea when I was listening to our episode on Neurologists. One of the things that came across so strongly was the people's feeling of lack of support when they're first diagnosed. And some sort of pamphlet, which I'm sure Parkinson's UK already does, some welcome back, unwelcome back, yeah. when you first get diagnosed. But involving local groups so that they can go to hospitals and say not only here's the, welcome, here's the pack, but also this is your local Parkinson's nurse, this is your contact with the local group, 
This is maybe a buddy system where you can ring somebody out when you've just been diagnosed. And Do you know, Mark, I think you don't just give somebody a buddy system like that. You don't say, here is a buddy system, use it or not. I think the buddy, and this probably is controversial, but should take you along to a local group, should force you along to a local group yeah. even. Because there's such apathy. If somebody just gives you a telephone number or a website or something, and there's a whole shock of just having been diagnosed, I bet people don't turn up. Be honest with me as a charity. Is GDPR a pain in the arse? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a challenge, and there are so many people in branches and groups who are desperate to connect and to support people within the, the branch and group. And it's a, a very fine line that we, we try to tread with the rules to enable that connection to happen. Mm. But it's a, it's a challenge. I mean, it's, it's there for a reason, the rules, mm. to GDPR, protect people. GDPR, is that a former communist country it, somewhere? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. it's, it's all about the right to privacy and all that sort oh, of I thing. So you have to put the people through hoops before they can... Well, we have to make sure that any individual has given their support for their details to be passed on to someone else for a particular reason. And, of course, mm. you don't know what you might want to contact them about, and therefore it's difficult to know whether they've given their support to be contacted. So some of this is about bravery, and we've talked about mm. this, haven't mm. we, Gary, about how much... You know, we can take a risk because the branches and groups and, and the charity all together are part of the same entity. And, and if we get it wrong and, you know, we're hauled up in front of kind of a, a commission, then mm. we'll be paying potentially fines out on, on money that's been donated. But we've got to look at ways at how we can safely tread that difficult But that underlines path. the difference between us, doesn't it, really? It Again, does. you have to stick to the rules. We don't necessarily. Yeah, well, and you wouldn't, would you? And we won't. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I, I think we've also got to be positive in the way that we deal with the NHS as well. It's, you know, there are problems in the NHS, but there are consultants who are really good and who go out of their way to make the processes work. So I'd quite like, if we've got a charter, I haven't bounced this off anyone in the team, but to come up with something that allows us to rate the consultants. So the Absolutely. good, good yeah. consultants should get respect and rating that reflects that. And those that don't you know, have those same standards, you can see that as well. The problem is, though, that so few neurologists aren't there per head in this country. Yeah. You know, that if you eliminate the ones who are not as good, you have even fewer. But anyway, next one. Hello. Uh, actually, I was going to speak, but Mark's already spoken for me. Oh, great. Because Which point? I found at lunchtime on the fundraising stall that you have a little pamphlet, which is produced by Parkinson's UK mm -hmm. and which explains to all new Parkies what it is. First line says it is a neurological condition. Well, I was never told that initially. I was just told, well, I can't really say it's Parkinson's, you'll have to go along and see a consultant. And when we walked into the consultant, he said, well, you've probably got Parkinson's. Now, OK, I was seeing a neurologist, and I assumed that one bit into the other one, but I wasn't given a pack. It took me four or five months to find my local group. I'm now the lead of that local group. And I maintain that we should be getting something in our hands. The consultants should know, the doctors should know where the local groups are, and that's something that ought to be there, Completely written in stone. And, and indeed, Parkinson's UK should know as well, because when I first was diagnosed, I, I went on the website, looked up where my local group was, 
eventually found an email, emailed the person. About a month later, they got back saying, we've closed down our group, no one exists in your area, which is completely untrue because I found just by accident the guy who runs a brilliant group in my area. So I don't know why the message was old. I know it's difficult keeping websites up to date. We have another comment from the floor. I went into hospital last year and uh, I found that I automatically, they assumed that because I had Parkinson's, I couldn't walk and I couldn't talk. So I was deprived of my Parkinson's medication, although I was perfectly able to continue self-medicating, but they had, I had it in their head, and the, the rules of the hospital state that when you're in hospital, all your medication has to be supplied through the hospital. And that's not the case with people with Parkinson's as a general rule, though I know it is the case with some people with Parkinson's. Yes, this has been debated earlier, yeah, wasn't it? It's an right. enormous problem, absolutely. So we come back again to don't make assumptions. Yeah. I mean, I heard a terrible story recently from an old... Well, he, he died last year, this guy. But his wife was telling me that he went to the hospital for a stomach... He had Parkinson's. Went in for a stomach operation, which kept him in for months. And the local hospital just would not give him his Parkinson's drugs. By the time he came out, he was in a really bad state, lost his voice completely, couldn't speak. And she was saying, is there anything we can do about that? I mean, it just seems extraordinary that a hospital wouldn't give something. I was rescued by my children. My girls came. And I'd been 12 hours without my medication. I was just a gibbering wreck. My hands and feet were cold. I was in a terrible state. And eventually, they found the sister who, was, who came on duty that night. And she saw sense. And then I was at last allowed to have my medication. So Margaret's it's not just about assumptions, it's very specifically also about medication. Yes. Isn't it? But Margaret's, yeah. Margaret's point is spot on. Yeah. I, I lived in Switzerland for three years after I was diagnosed, and the mindset there around medication was a much more peer-to-peer -peer discussion with the individual. I find in the UK, if I'm you know, going on holiday and I'm going to run out of medication, it's the palaver of getting extra medication for a period when you're going away is really difficult because the assumption is, you know, are you going to waste this? Are you going to overdose in some way? And that's just not the reality. So your point earlier, Julian, is we haven't got enough neurologists. I'd rather we had standards right and the attitude right of the roles that we've got rather than say we should keep everyone even if they've got the wrong attitude. Mm -hmm. And the, the attitude is fundamental, actually. And maybe it's about those nurses that you're paying yeah. for being able to prescribe. Yeah, so, so generally most nurses do prescribe. I know we heard an instance today uh, in Halifax, I think it was, where there's potentially uh, nurses that don't prescribe and there's been a problem in Northern Ireland as well with uh, nurses not prescribing. But we are very pro uh, the ability for a, mm. a nurse to be able to prescribe. If I can come back on the what we've been talking about, because that's been part of the campaign, Get It On Time, which absolutely needs to be in the Charter. And that goes back to Get It On Time is, is also about empowering the individual. It's not just mm. about saying the hospital needs to run around and make sure the patients... No, the patients are you know, fully functioning human beings. They often just have got something else that could have catastrophically happened but they can still manage to medicate. Absolutely. Right, two more, and then I think we're going to have to draw this to a close, I'm afraid. To go back to your point about self-management when you're diagnosed, patients need a toolkit that tells them what are the symptoms of Parkinson's. There are 40 motor and non-motor symptoms. 
And which are ones to really worry about, i.e. you have to contact someone with medical knowledge, and which are ones that you can manage yourself probably with some help, which could be provided to them in a toolkit. There is an existing idea called the home-based care pathway, which I think Rory knows about, actually, where you only see a specialist when you need help, because at the moment the system says you see them theoretically at regular periods, but a lot of people don't get that. But if the, if the NHS could free up some time for people to self-manage better, then the other people who had urgent problems would be able to access the medical pro- profession mm. more quickly. For me, it's the issue about scaring people, because I had, yeah. on my second appointment, I was given a list about three pages long, and they said, tick off all the things that apply. And it was, are you singly incontinent? Are you doubly incontinent? Are you depressed? Are you blah, 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 blah? And by the time you got to the end of my, my God, I wanted to throw myself out of the window. You know, you think, if this is my future. So th- I don't quite know how we manage that, because um, I found that terrifying, but there was a lot of information there, certainly. But there's a bit of a, you know, weighing up maybe to be done. I don't know. The other point is the self-management. I may be alone in this. I have such huge fluctuations in my Parkinson's. You know, one minute you see me and you think I haven't got it. The next minute I can be literally slumped on the floor, unable to speak, unable to communicate in any way whatsoever. So, for example, I've had before, if we're travelling and I get onto a plane, I may get on it from a wheelchair. My husband has to lift me out of the wheelchair, put me into the seat, etc. And then, say, two hours later... I'm absolutely fine. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my God, what do I do? Do I just bounce off this plane? Or, you know, do I actually pretend that I'm as bad as I was? But they're huge fluctuations, and I don't think the rest of you have that, do you? Nothing like it. I mean, I, I, when I look at you, Julian, I feel so incredibly lucky, really, because your Parkinson's is so much more difficult. It's when Mike said, I remember we were at a restaurant in Barcelona, and Mike said now to the waiter, now my wife must have something to eat within 15 minutes. If she doesn't, she will lose the power of speech. And I thought, I am so lucky in comparison. It's just incredible. Good days and bad days, but good no day, yeah. fluctuation. Well, I have good 15 minutes and bad 15 minutes. One more. Last point. Who's got a killer point? Let's self-edit here. This is, this is actually going back to the medication thing in hospital. I had a positive experience in, uh, in a private hospital under the NHS for, for a minor orthopaedic surgery. And a doctor came in and very cleverly interrogated me about my medication, when I had to take it, what I had to take, repeating questions so that cognitively they had to be confident that I knew what I had to take when I had to take it, and they just let me get on with it. I signed the form, and they just left me with my medication, and that was it. I just got on with it and took it as I needed it. We all have prescriptions, and we all have you know, prescribed times when we're taking it, but sometimes we need to take it in between or extra dose, or something like that. And, sure. and, and knowing that the healthcare people there knew that I understood what I was doing and therefore could lead me to get on with it. Now, that's something that maybe could be put I love that idea. to the NHS. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Some people will need more support. In, in, in our trust... A.K.A. I'm not an idiot. Well, it seemed to be down to the individual sister on each ward who would, some of them are martinets and say, you're not doing it, and some of them say, yes, fine, no problem. Common sense, there we are. And and might I say, on the contrary of people with Parkinson's idiots, in my experience as I travel around the country, people with Parkinson's are the most extraordinary people. (laughs) Phenomenal. Uh, Able to do extraordinary things. I mean, whether it's climbing Everest or 
or running to Barcelona like Gary, or who's now a th the, holding the, the record the, again of the three-legged race. I mean, he's lucky to have three legs, but... <laughs> <laughs> so I think, Caroline, we need to answer your challenge. We need to think about the challenge. We need to figure out what we're doing on April the 11th and to see how we can contribute, absolutely. And in the meantime, Paul has been doing some thinking about what sort of day of action we could have. Well, yes, uh, since you've challenged us to this day of action on next April, um, what I'd suggest is that we, we all write to our MPs so that we can get to Parliament on that day. And then those of us who have trouble with freezing, we just try walking across the road towards Parliament. And then those of us who have uh, sort of shakes, uh, we can just uh, take the cream tea that they offer us or the drinks or the glasses. And then uh, those of us who have constipation problems, <laughs> we, we just use the lavatories in Parliament. And we can bring the whole place to a halt, I guarantee. A day of inaction. A day of inaction. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a real honour to be here for us. And we will see you next week, I suppose. Thank you. Although we've been talking about a day of inaction, we hope that next week the other three will be back in action. So goodbye from Birmingham. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Movers and Shakers with me, Rory Kathleen-Jones, and my friends Gillian Lacey-Solomar, Mark Mardell, Paul Mayhew Archer, Nicholas Mostyn and Jeremy Paxman. The show is produced by Nick Hilton for Poddo. Our theme music is by Alex Stobbs and cover artwork by Till Lukat. Thanks again to Broadway for their support. Please subscribe to get new episodes straight into your podcast app and do rate and review if you've enjoyed the show. We're also on Twitter at Movers and Six. That's Movers and the number six. So please share the show there and email any thoughts or questions to feedback at moversandshakerspodcast.com. See you next week. <laughs>